Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Proverbs. It's right after Psalms, which is in the middle of your Bible. 25 years ago, a father in Nashville, H. Jackson Brown, knew that his son was going to be going off to college, and he felt prompted to write down some instructions for him. And just he, he knew that parents should never pave the road for their children, but he thought it'd be good to give him a roadmap. He thought it'd take a couple hours. It actually took him several days, and uh, he gave them to his son. He eventually published them in what's called Life's Little Instruction Book, and it sold millions of copies. And uh, that was to give his son advice for living in an adult world, in a grown-up world. 3,000 years earlier, Solomon, king of Israel, did the same thing for his son. And uh, he wrote to his son to help him attain wisdom and discipline, to acquire a disciplined and prudent life. That's the book of Proverbs. And it's the original life's little instruction book. And it contains God's wisdom for successful living. And I don't know about you, but if I look back at some of the dumb things that I've done, if I would have had a better grasp on the book of Proverbs, it would have saved me a lot of pain and frustration. Well, Proverbs teaches how to live skillfully. And it talks about so many areas of life, including family, friends, finances, speech, and wisdom in the area of uh, work in particular. And so we're going to look at some of those in subsequent weeks, but this morning I want to deal with really the first chapter and some other areas, but focus on the concept of wisdom itself, because that's what those early chapters deal with, and the importance of acquiring this wisdom. So I want us to get started, and there's an outline in your, in your bulletin. Um, here's the first principle. God offers us wisdom to give us skill for living. And here's how the book opens. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Solomon was a primary author. There's a couple others that weigh in at the end of the, of the chapter of the book. But uh, scripture tells us that Solomon actually wrote 3,000 Proverbs. Less than a third of them are recorded here. Toward, well, in fact, 250 years later, King Hezekiah uh, compiled some of Solomon's Proverbs and put them with this book as well. In the second verse, we get to one of the purposes of the book. There's a twofold purpose. He says, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. Right living, justice, and equity. So what is wisdom? As I mentioned, it's skill for living. But the word that is used for it here, the Hebrew word, is the same word in the Old Testament, original language, that was used for the skill that the people had who put together Aaron the priest's robes. Very intricate design. Same word that is used for those who were the builders of the tabernacle. And then later the temple, they worked with wisdom. It was skill. But Proverbs is specifically talking about just 
wisdom or skill for living. And it isn't just intellectual, it's primarily moral. Moral uh, living uh, that will profit a person. In fact, uh, it says in verse 8, Hear my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head. That's like a haku lei. And ornaments about your neck. There's the lei. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And then goes off into the warning there. This, this is said in the home where it's parents instructing a child, a young person, how to conduct himself or herself. It's uh, later said in the palace, training and preparing a, a person for leadership. It's not an evangelistic book, even though some Old Testament books are, uh, but this book in particular assumes that people are in a covenant relationship with God, that they are the people of God because the Hebrew people were because of the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you put your faith in Christ, you too are in covenant relationship with God because we're under the new covenant that went into effect when Christ died on the cross. And so these guidelines, these proverbs are given to God's people to help them to know how to live wisely. We're not born with wisdom. I think we, we mostly know that. Uh, it's gained by disciplined instruction. By nature, we are foolish and lazy. We don't want to apply ourselves to disciplined instruction, practicing, putting into practice the hard truths of life because we'd rather coast. I think that is just so human nature. We're like wayward children that need guidance. For instance, that's true in every area of life, but think about the array of musicians. We had six musicians up here this morning, and then uh, Megan and Bruce were leading worship. You may be surprised if I told you that not a one of them ever practiced those instruments, and they didn't even rehearse for this morning. In fact, you probably wouldn't believe me, you shouldn't. <laughs> it's not true, is it? Every one of them has practiced diligently to gain that skill. And that's true uh, of every endeavor in life. The job that you perform, in all probability, it took some practice to develop that skill in relationships. We had a recruit for the UH baseball team this morning in our first service. And I'd heard Coach Trapasso talk about him last week. And he was here with his family. Same with baseball. I mean, you just don't go out on the field and start playing. You have to practice and discipline yourself uh, to gain that skill. Well, why would it be any different in, in life? God offers wisdom, skill in living, to all who would receive it. But there's a couple criteria. Here's the first. We must be wise enough to seek it. Have enough wisdom to seek it. He continues in verse 4 by saying, the second purpose, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. So it's given to parents to teach their young uh, children. Uh, 
growing children. It's also given, though, to youth so that they may grab hold of this. And it's given to people who have some wisdom so that they can grow wiser still. But it also exposes the fool who disregards God's wisdom and gives warning to that person. So what is prudence? If it's to give prudence to the naive. Prudence means caution. means discernment. Common sense. Dee was telling me the other day that she heard a couple of wise women in our church. She overheard them talking, and one of them said, I just don't know how you operate in life without common sense. And the other person responded, yes, but it seems like about 50% of the people do. (laughs) I think that's right. It's like we need to acquire wisdom and some prudence, common sense. He continues by saying in verse 6, to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. A proverb, as I said in my article, is a similitude. It's this is like this. I mean, a lot of them came out of Ben Franklin in early America. Stitch in time saves nine or saves nine and all those kinds of maxims, proverbs. Well, that's what the proverbs are. They're maxims, general principles. They're not promises. And some people come to the book of Proverbs and think that these are all promises that they can just claim, and it's not really so. For instance, they think, well, if you raise your children correctly, they'll always be godly and never rebel. If you work hard, you're going to be rich. If you act wisely, you'll live to a ripe old age. When in reality, some ungodly or excuse me, some godly people have troubled kids. And uh, some ungodly parents have wonderful children. Some hardworking Christians struggle to make ends meet, while fools win the lottery sometimes, or get rich in business. Uh, some godly folk die young of car accidents or cancer. Well, some who abuse themselves with substances uh, or in other ways defy the odds and live to a ripe old age. The maxims of Proverbs express general principles. And uh, generally, those who live according to these ways can anticipate these results. Those who ignore them may expect some real trouble. Uh, But the exceptions... Don't nullify the truthfulness the general principles convey. Wisdom's not hiding. In fact, in that first chapter, wisdom is personified, takes on human characteristics. And and Solomon writes, Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers, or mockers, delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Calling out to the naive to come and get some wisdom. The naive. The naive are those who are gullible, who are open to anything and believe everything. And in fact, in our culture, open-mindedness is praised. 
In our postmodern culture, uh, it's really put forth that, that everybody's truth is valid and we should just be accepting of, of everything as equally valid and truthful. In fact, there are many mockers, and scoffers means those who defy God and deny Him. Uh, there are many of those in our institutions of higher learning espousing foolishness continually to young minds and telling them to embrace all things that are antithetical to what God says is true. I mentioned the legislature last week. I'll mention them again. Week by week, they continue to not surprise me, but just to confirm that, wow, there are so many there advancing bills that are foolish, that are against the words and wisdom of God that is set forth. Well, in fact, Proverbs 14, 15 says, The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. Isn't that true? The older we get, we're a little more cautious. We realize not everything's true. We're not going to go for that get-rich-quick scheme again, and it doesn't always work out the way we thought it would. And yet, I think young people are especially susceptible to that, and uh, we need to gain wisdom. The first chapters of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9 in particular, have competing voices. One of them is Lady Wisdom, who is encouraging people to come and to gain wisdom. And then there's Madame Folly, who is trying to throw out the seductions of the world, saying, come this way and uh, you'll benefit from this. God doesn't force wisdom on anyone. Wisdom's not hiding but it's hidden from those who are unwilling to intentionally seek it. There's a blogger by the name of Dr. Jim Dennison, and I read his blogs regularly. regularly and um, he wrote one the other day. He mentioned that the Gramophone Awards were established in 1959. Then they changed the word, fortunately, to the Grammy Awards. And he was commenting on them from last Sunday evening. He said that Adele won, she dominated, uh, whoever that is, I'm sure a lot of you know Adele, and uh, included the song, record, and album of the year. 426 nominations, 84 categories, and he said, out of that list, I only knew 10 songs. And I realized how little of the music industry I knew. But then he asked this question, why is my ignorance of contemporary music a good thing? He'll comment on that, but he says, now wait a minute. I'm not advocating that Christians should withdraw from secular culture. Not at all. We need to engage culture. We need to know what's going on in culture so that we can be salt and light, like Jesus said, uh, in the midst of a secular culture. And in fact, there are some aspects of contemporary culture we shouldn't have anything to do with. He mentioned in particular uh, Fifty Shades Darker which is a sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey, which is a movie just pornographic, no redemptive value. There's some areas of culture we shouldn't be involved in, but some that are good aspects of culture we can be profitably engaged in so that we can engage people who need Christ. But then he says this about his ignorance of contemporary music. He said, I know little about contemporary music, not because such music isn't important, Rather, it's because ignorance of one dimension of life is a necessary condition 
for understanding another. That's a good thought. And then he mentions a novel that was written in 1912 by Harold Bell Wright. I'm sure you probably haven't read it. I hadn't either. It's called Their Yesterdays. And in it, the author explores 13 different great things in life, like love and dreams and knowledge and other expected topics. But among those 13, he lists as one of the great things is ignorance. And this is what the author writes about his character. With the passion to know fully aroused, with his mind fretting to grapple with the problem of life and his purpose fixed to solve the riddle of time, the man succeeded in acquiring this, that he must dare to know little. The wisest men to whom the world pays highest tribute are the wisest because they have not attempted to know all, but recognizing the value of ignorance have dared to remain ignorant of much. Wow. What do you want to know the most about? I mean, would it be music or movies or maybe sports or politics or other interests? I mean, the Food Channel, those are all good things. And it's good to dabble into those things, but they're not the best. The best is to acquire wisdom that comes from God, and that takes some intentionality. If those things occupy and preoccupy our minds continually, and we give no thought to the words of God, Proverbs and the rest of Scripture, we're missing it. Scripture's been offered to us. Wisdom has been offered to us. But we need to be wise enough to seek it and to be intentional in the seeking thereof. Secondly, a criteria is that we must be wise enough to start at the beginning. Wise enough to seek it, wise enough to start at the beginning. And he gets there in verse 7 when he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The quest for wisdom begins with the fear of God. The wisest thing we'll ever do is learn to fear God. And, and that doesn't mean that we cower in terror before God, but it's recognizing that this God who spoke the universe into existence is awesome. He's majestic. He's glorious. He's transcendent. He is so beyond us. He's come close to us in the person of Jesus, and he's become our friend. And that's wonderful, and we should treasure that relationship. But we should never forget who he is. He's an awesome God. He punishes evil. And uh, that holy reverence that we have for him is akin, well, to the microcosm that a fear that a child has of a father who demands respect. And that is what the beginning of wisdom is. It's not talking about foolishness here as merely a mental defect, but as a moral deficiency when we turn from God. Down in the ninth chapter, though, it talks about those who scoff at God, those who mock Him, those who mock His Word. And it says, Do not reprove a scoffer 
or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he'll be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. Fools never respond to rebuke or instruction. But wise people are teachable. And most of us look back and say, wow, I really needed to learn some things there. And if that was true then, it's probably true now. President's Day is Monday, tomorrow. And, uh, wow, we honor our presidents. Some were wise, some were fools. I would say that's probably true. One of them that became wise is written about in this book I mentioned a couple weeks ago. I'm reading on in here. I'm almost to the end. This book by Michael Medved, The American Miracle, Divine Providence in the Rise of the Republic. He was broadcasting his national radio show from Honolulu this past week. And Dee and I had the opportunity. Uh, we heard he was going to be over here to Kahala Book Club, and we went and heard him for about two hours speak one evening. Powerful book in which he talks about ten providences that not only shaped the course of the United States, but the course of the history of the world. And one of them had to do with Abraham Lincoln. See, Abraham Lincoln was elected president uh, in 1860, and when he took office in early 1861, he knew that this nation was on the verge of a civil war over slavery, that uh, the South would probably secede. And so he put himself to study in two particular significant areas. He studied military science because he had no background in that and he wanted to be able to command the Army of the Potomac that would be sent forth. He also gave himself to prayer, study of the scripture, and church attendance. And uh, in fact, that was surprising because he was already had the reputation as a scoffer at the things of Christianity. He'd earned that reputation as a young man. I'll get to that in a moment. But w right after the, um, well, his first Sunday after the inauguration, he was invited to the Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. called the Church of the Presidents. All the top politicians and the presidents went there. He turned it down and instead went to the New York, Pre New York Avenue Presbyterian Church which focused on heavy theology and rigorous teaching of Scripture because that intrigued him. He even sent in a $50 check for his annual pew rent. So we're thinking about doing that here, uh, <laughs> just to let you know. But it was surprising that he, an open scoffer, would start attending church, studying the Bible, and praying. Because when he was a young man in New Salem, uh, in the, uh, Illinois, excuse me, Salem, Illinois, he joined a book club. And uh, they studied books like by the skeptic Thomas Paine or the Scottish writer Robert Burns. And Lincoln himself wrote a pamphlet attempting to disprove the divinity of Christ and the authority of Scripture. Later, when he ran for Congress, one of his friends took it and burned it because he knew that would be politically problematic for him. But now... He began, because his biographer says, of the tragic losses that he'd had in his life to turn back to the faith that his parents had had and study scripture, looking for guidance from the depression that he'd incurred. His son, Willie, died 
and you've probably heard about that, in 1862, and uh, his biographer said that he began to have a crystallization of his faith once again, began to come back together. Well, it was 1863. The war was not going well for the North, for the Union, and uh, he'd come into the presidency with a deep conviction that he needed to free the slaves, but it just was a difficult task. So many people were against that for economic reasons as well as others, and uh, yet he had this pressing sense that God was encouraging him to move forward that, and so he wrote out an emancipation proclamation and shared it with his cabinet, and they received it with stunned silence, and then they began to protest and had all kinds of reasons why he shouldn't do this, and it would be viewed as a desperate measure, and the union wasn't doing well, and, and they just were against it. So he filed it away in a drawer, but he'd already prayed about this. He shared later on many occasions, and told the Lord if he would give him a sign, he'd move forward on this in any case. Well, that sign came a few months later. When the Confederate Army came into the north, this was before... Um, Gettysburg, they came up into the north and it looked really bad. They could, they could probably even come into D.C. And, uh, but the Union Army came into an area where the Confederates had been and one of the soldiers found three cigars wrapped in a piece of paper. He threw the piece of paper aside and passed out the cigars. They were excited. And then one of them picked up the piece of paper and they realized this was the battle plan of the Confederate Army. And uh, because of that, they turned it over to the officers. They won the Battle of Antietam, which was a real turning point, and the army of the Confederacy moved back south. Lincoln took that as a sign from the Lord that it was time. And so he went to his cabinet, and he read them the proclamation again and said, I've made a vow to my maker, and if he fulfilled it, I said I would do my part as well. And so he acted upon that. The summer of 1864, uh, a man named Joshua Speed that he'd grown up with, who was also in that book club back in Salem, Illinois, came into his office. And uh, he saw the president sitting with his gas lamp hissing on his desk, and he was reading a heavily bound Bible. And Joshua Speed said, well, I see, sarcastically, see you're profitably engaged. And Lincoln said, I am profitably engaged. And Speed said, well, if you have recovered from your skepticism, I'm sorry that I have not. Medved says, Lincoln rose from his chair, looked directly into Speed's face from his towering height, placed a friendly hand on his shoulder and said, you are wrong, Speed. Take all of this book upon reason you can, and the balance on faith, and you will live and die a happier man. Well, Lincoln served his first term, and he was, surprisingly, re-elected to his second term. He gave his second inaugural address, and it was quite surprising to the populace. I mean, there had been 18 inaugural addresses given to that point, and uh, do you know how many times Scripture had been cited in all of those 18 addresses? One time, which is surprising when you think of the faith of some of the presidents prior to that. 
And that was one scripture referenced by John Quincy Adams. But in this second inaugural address of Lincoln's, he cited scripture 14 times. He asked for prayer from the nation three times. And he mentioned God 14 times in just 701 words. It was a short speech. How do you think the press received it? They hated it. They trashed it. In fact, his own paper in Springfield, Illinois, said it was pathetic. It, was, it didn't rise to the level of significance. The um, New York Herald called it a little speech of ge glittering generalities. The New York world condemned the president's biblical references and spiritual speculations as improper violations of the sec secular focus of the office. And they said the president's theology smacks as strong of the dark ages as does Pope Pius IX's politics, that he's abandoning all pretense of statesmanship. Nothing's changed, right? Lincoln moved from the foolishness of his youth to wisdom because he was willing to seek the one who gives wisdom and the words that God had set forth. The fool wastes his life, whereas the wise woman or man lives a life on purpose and can look back with satisfaction. There are so many benefits to wisdom. After wisdom calls out in the streets, Wisdom offers a warning and then a promise. It's recorded in Proverbs 1. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me will live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Do you want to live at peace with security? Well, seek wisdom. I want to give you a couple of suggestions. Number one, ask for wisdom. Ask the Lord for wisdom. In James, he records this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James, in particular, speaking about when we're in a trial, we can turn to God for wisdom, but that's true just in any circumstance, in life itself, asking God for wisdom. That's Believing he'll provide it. That's faith. But then secondly, ponder God's wisdom. That's discipline. Ponder it intentionally. If you're not reading scripture regularly, do so. Some of you do so for preparation for your Ohana groups. I just say as a part of your devotion, we encourage people at least four times a week to open your, your Bible and ponder this passage and uh, see what God has to say to you about your life. If you're not in a reading program presently, well, try the Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. You may want to start tomorrow. You may want to start March 1st. There's 31 days in March, and you'll know which chapter you can read each day. And some people do that regularly. Take a month and just read a proverb a day. If we'll do that, if we'll ask God for wisdom, if we're wise enough to seek it, if we will uh, ponder his wisdom and start at the beginning, fearing God and pursuing his wisdom, we'll grow truly wise as people. And you know what? Seriously, uh, we can be wiser than philosophers at Princeton or Harvard or Oxford 
if we fear God and follow his ways. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for the wisdom that you provide, that we can learn from your word, your prophets, your apostles, your son, our Savior Jesus. And thank you for the greatest wisdom of all that is the gospel, that you would redeem sinful and rebellious people by coming among us and giving your life in exchange for ours, that we might become the righteousness of God in you. Thank you for that wisdom that is embodied in Christ and the gospel. Lord, help us grow in wisdom. Help us to convey this to our children in, in our families and in this church family and beyond. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.